Atu unsar thuin himenam, weakne namo thin. Quime thiudenasus thins. Werthi will you thins, swain himena, yach ana erthe. Chlef unsarana thanasentinan, give us himedacha. Yach afletuns that is gulan siyeme, swaswe yach wis afletum them skulum unsarem. Yach ne bringes uns in frestuvnia, a glausions of dama ubelin. Und der Thine ist Judengardi, jach Magds, jach Ultus in Erwins. Amen. Hello, welcome, welcome to the uh, Rhetorical History Podcast. What you have uh, heard there was uh, the remnants of a dead language, uh, which is Gothic, an Eastern Germanic uh, language. And uh, what you heard was the uh, Our Father who art thou in heaven recited uh, in ancient Gothic, or at least what we think ancient Gothic was like. And that's to introduce what I'm going to be talking about today. Today I'm going to be talking about uh, Jordanus and the origins and deeds of the Goths. And with me today I have Dr. Brian Swain, Assistant Professor of History at Kennesaw State University. And he actually wrote his dissertation on Jordanus and is an expert on late, late Roman history and Roman barbarian interaction. And uh, currently is about to uh, publish a book, isn't he? Aren't you? <laughs> I sure hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Empire of Hope and Tragedy, Jord- uh, colon, Jordanus and the Making of Roman Gothic History. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Well, first, first of all, I just want to, um, I'd like to ask you, why do you find Jordanus so fascinating that you are willing to spend uh, this much time on him. It's quite a it's quite a short volume, right? It is. Probably in standard pages 70 or so, just 70. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's short and I've spent a long time on him. Uh but he never ceases to be interesting. And I mean I, I could sit here for hours <laughs> much to your chagrin <laughs> and tell you like why I find him interesting, but I, I I guess it boils down to two, two stand out beyond all others. He's the only surviving barbarian, barbarian author from the ancient Roman empire. And by barbarian, I mean, of course, one of the the non-Roman peoples of ancient Europe. So the Celtic speaking, Germanic speaking, Iranian, even speaking Slavic eventually. Uh, So non-Roman European peoples. Uh, And these, these barbarian groups were pre-literate societies. Like they didn't write anything down. So everything that was composed, written about them, was composed by, by Greek and Roman authors. And these, these authors had no cultural connections to these barbarian peoples. And, and they generally wrote about them in fairly negative terms. I mean, right. Also oh, right. racist terms, right? The kind of, or, sure. like, I mean, say, they, like... they call them barbarians, right? <laughs> I mean, just, uh, they, were, they were considered to be uh, brutish, savage, uh, controlled by their emotions, animalistic, barely, barely human at all. Um, but Jordanes breaks this mold because he himself was a goth. He, he claimed a gothic ethnicity. Um, in his words, he says that he, quote, traced his descent or origin from the goths. Mm. And so, so not only was he a goth, but he was a goth writing a history of the Goths. So he's our only barbarian who wrote about barbarians. And this is something 
truly unique from the ancient literary record. At least what but, we have uh, as remaining. Right. So he's records. unique in our in our record. Right. Precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, what we also have to bear in mind uh, that just because he was a goth doesn't mean he was like some sort of fur-clad, horned, helmeted <laughs> barbarian. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was the Vikings. That seems to be like transferring, like those those sure, hor- yeah, the horn clad. They were it was never true, but yeah, it's uh, it about the Vikings. Probably not. Yeah, they it, it, it probably all didn't look like Wagnerian uh, <laughs> operas. Um, right. though, though I will say, so so the cliche thing is to think of barbarians and horn helmeted horn helmets, and the cliche response is actually they never wore horns. Uh, we do actually have some some very very ancient uh, European archaeological evidence depicting figures with horned helmets. Though I admit that they're probably decorative and meant to be sort of these special, awe-inspiring figures, not to like ram people in battle or something with, right, <laughs> like bulls. But, so Giordano wasn't one of these sort of cliche, imaginary barbarian types that we have in our in our in our heads. Uh, he was a goth, sure, but he was also a Roman, hmm. and so we need to think of him as a Roman goth. He had a dual identity. Uh, after all, he wrote in Latin. Uh, he spent much of his life in the Roman Northern Balkans, uh, in what is modern-day Bulgaria. He was a secretary to a Roman general, although that Roman general was also of Gothic descent. He composed two histories in what was then the thousand-year-old classical style. So he wrote one history of the Goths that we call the Getica, mm-hmm. um, and a history of the Romans that we call the Romana. In that history, the Romana covered uh, a time span ranging from Christian creation all the way up to the present day. And the present, of course, for Jordanes was uh, around the year 552, 551 or 552, though I think 552. Um, and he was writing in the, in the Roman capital of Constantinople. And so I think these are the two main reasons he's, he's fascinating. Number one, he's a goth writing about goths. So he's this voice from an otherwise voiceless people. Mm-hmm. Number two, he's, he's not just a goth, he's a Roman goth. And while from our modern point of view, that's, that's quite interesting and unique. Right. Actually, I think from, a, from a, the point of view of the ancients living in the Roman Empire, someone like Jordanes with, with a layered identity uh, was probably the norm. Right, right? yeah. Because, because, you know, the Roman Empire was... It was an empire. It, it was a state that ruled over a great multitude of other cultures and ethnic groups. And especially in Constantinople, it seems like uh, they're part, part of the great uh, the great uh, success that they had was that they were able to, I think perhaps to a greater extent than the old Roman Senate in Italy, uh, be able to incorporate uh, ambassadors and people from all these disparate nations surrounding them at their court, right? The the um, the uh, crusaders from uh, Western Europe, when they came to Constantinople, they were very shocked to see Muslims at the court in Constantinople, <laughs> and like how diverse they were. It's like, what? These are enemies, right? Uh, but they they had people from even the ones they were at war with. They had ambassadors and the, this huge uh, multicultural, multilingual diversity at the court in Constantinople, right? And speaking of that word diversity, it's a very it's a very common word these days in modern sort of cultural political parlance. But Jordanes uses that exact word mm. um, to describe Constantinople, uh, uh, diversorum of, of peoples. He calls Constantinople as he describes it as as if it's a a 
a fountain or a flood of various peoples in, in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so, so, so the people with, 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 so cultural co-mixture, in other words, was, was the norm. Right. Um, and, uh, but we rarely get to see this in our sources. Uh, yeah, rarely- yeah, because, because they're all speaking from the Roman perspective, right? Or the, or the Byzantine perspective, you could say they, they call themselves Romans too, but yeah. Sure. And, and generally from an elite perspective. Mm. And so people of, of elite status writing in, in a very conservative genre specific forms of literature, they didn't sort of, you know, sort of express the various facets of their personhood or whatever. They, I'm sure they had them, yeah. but they, they stuck to the, the norms of writing. Mm. Um, and so, so Giordano is being this Roman Goth who's writing about Romans and Goths allows us this kind of keyhole view into uh, someone to use an over overused term in academic <laughs> jargon, negotiating his own Romanness and Gothicness. There you go. There. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's the, that's the that's the way to say it in in uh, academies. You could say. Oh yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, this uh, so the Gerica is uh, quite a short uh, piece of history, but it's it's very fascinating just because of its uh, its material that it covers right, and it's um, it starts with him mapping out the origins of the Goths essentially in Sweden or in Scandia, this, uh, this uh, what we now know today, not quite as Scandinavia, because I don't think he included Denmark, but, uh, but, the, but Norway and Sweden at least. Um, yep. And then you have, right, this, uh, the, a migration from Sweden to Poland, mm-hmm. and then from Poland to close to the Black Sea, um, and then you have uh, there they kind of first meet the Romans, right? That's yeah. the that's where I mean they interact with the Amazons and oh, <laughs> a lot of other peoples there, a lot of mythical peoples. Um, but then they meet the Romans and they become, we'd say, Romanized. They become the auxiliaries uh, that are incorporated often into the Roman armies uh, to to in their wars against the other barbarians. Uh, and at times they're their allies, uh, and at times they are at war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it works up to, I guess, a certain um, climax at uh, with the battle against the Huns. That's one part that gets a lot of against the tail of the Hun. That's uh, one part that gets a lot of attention. Um, and after that, with the Goths taking over Italy and ruling Italy. Uh, in a very Roman way, right? Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. but, and then there are some intrigues there uh, among the Goths, and Belisarius comes and takes over, takes over uh, Italy again for the Romans. And but at the end, you have a union between um, a prominent Goth of this lineage and a Roman. Uh, not emperor was it or general or who is it of, of the imperial household it's, or someone? It's the emperor Justinian's cousin. His right. name is right. German, Germanus. So a kind kind of uh, a reconciliation in some ways you could say of of the two. Uh, is that uh, is that kind of a good broad outline? Just most certainly. Brief outline. So the Absolutely. question is, of course, uh, why does he write this history? There's already history of the Goths written by Cassiodorus. That is, he he refers to or mentions right, mm-hmm. um, and. So what is the purpose? Uh, and you have a good uh, thesis on this, and I think you're right, uh, why he wrote the Getica. Sure, sure. Um, 
Well, we need to keep in mind that in addition to everything that you just you know, cogently laid out there, um, the, the, the Gedeka, the, this, this story of the, the history of the Goths, is also the story of how the Goths become, as you said, Romanized, civilized, how they become culturally sophisticated, how they become militarily glorious and, and intertwined with all of these, these seminal events of the Greco-Roman past. Um, it's a history that glorifies the Goths and praises Roman Gothic cooperation. And I cannot stress to you enough just how weird that is because <laughs> like nothing like it had ever, ever been written. Um, and as a Roman history writer writing in this classical style, you just don't go around glorifying Goths. Right. right? They're, they're barbarians. They're, right. They're, they're enemies. Or, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so, and so, and then, so you praise Goths and then, and then you go on to praise Roman Gothic friendship. That might even be weirder for the following reason, because when Giordanes wrote in the year 552, uh, a war was raging between the Eastern Roman empire and, and Gothic Italy. And so, so here we have Giordanes himself, a Roman Goth writing this pro-Gothic history that praised the Romans and Goths as allies in the midst of this war between Goths and Romans. And we have to remember, he was writing in the Roman imperial capital, you know, maybe like less than a mile away from the royal palace where, <laughs> yeah. where, the, where the Justinian was, you know, he was, he was promulgating all, all this propaganda, calling the Goths barbarians and, and heretical tyrants that had to be destroyed. And this was a really weird history to write in this, in this, in this strange circumstance. And so, you know, why did he do this? Um, what was he trying to do by writing this? Um, and so, as you know, David, and as your podcast is exploring here, um, ancient histories, and history is really from, of all periods, uh, they weren't just records of, of data and like stuff that happened. They had rhetorical purposes. They had literary purposes, philosophical, political, ideological purposes. Uh, they were meant to persuade, not just inform. Exactly. And, and so, and, you know, some texts, look, they, they leaned more toward the persuasive and political than the informative side of things. And I think the Getica is one such text mm -hmm. that's really trying to, to bend the past in a certain way to make you understand the present in a certain way. Right. Um, and it's, it's not always the most factually accurate thing you've ever written or ever, ever, ever read. Um, and it wasn't meant to be. And scholars, they, they agree about this. They agree about this general quality of, of the text, um, but they, they very much disagree over what Giordanes was trying to do when he was writing this. And mm. I'm going to lay out three main scholarly approaches okay. and interpretation yep. to his purpose. Uh, and so the first and oldest of these actually doesn't really pay attention to Giordanes' purposes much at all. Uh, because this old model suggests that Giordanes, he essentially just copied and, and summarized another work right. of Gothic. It's kind of like a hack plagiarized job almost, yeah. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. You, should, you, should, you should see what some of these 19th century German scholars called Giordanes. Oh, Nor Norwegian too. I saw a Norwegian translation and he said that uh, this was uh, obviously a less noble soul and sometimes uh, <laughs> a more noble soul and noble pen penetrates through and that must be the voice of Cassiodorus. <laughs> yes, that's it. Yep. And, and, and 
the famous, uh, the, the great Theodore Mommsen uh, called uh, him an impudent plagiarist. <laughs> and he wrote it in Latin, of course. <laughs> and so, so that work of Gothic history, that, that, that lost work of Gothic history that he's supposedly um, yeah, let, let, let's just uh, tell for the listeners, like Cassiodorus is supposed to have written a uh, how many volume uh, work of Gothic history? Twelve. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, that, that work was written by Cassiodorus, 12 volume history of the Goth. And Cassiodorus was a was a Roman statesman who lived in Ostrogothic Italy in the sixth century. And he actually worked in the governments of the Ostrogothic kings. Mm. And so this, this scholarly interpretation, it's, it's based on the fact that in the Getica, Giordanes mentions that he was asked to summarize Cassiodorus's history. And thereafter, uh, uh, scholars became convinced that, that Giordanes did exactly that, and he, they faithfully preserved his work. Uh, and that, that interpretation you know, reigned supreme for the, the better part of, of two centuries. But in the mm. 1980s, uh, a, the second scholarly approach emerged, and it argues that Giordanes didn't did not simply copy Cassiodorus, but that he had his own authorial agenda, and that agenda was actually to praise Justinian and to be the spokesman for his conquest of Italy. Right. Now, this interpretation is based mainly on the very final lines of the Getica, uh, where Giordanes addresses his reader directly. And says, and this is pretty much a quotation, Verdane says, look, in case anyone thinks that I wrote this to praise the Goths, because I trace my descent from the Goths, they should know that I actually wrote this to praise the Emperor Justinian. And after this, scholars, some scholars, uh, they simply, they, they accepted this at face value. They took Giordanes at his word, and then they worked backwards into the text and interpreted the text to align with this pro-Roman, based on its ending, supposedly anti-Gothic sentiment. Perhaps I can just uh, quote that from the book here at the conclusion. Please do. And now we have recited the origin of the Goths, the noble line of Amalia, and the deeds of brave men. East, this glorious race yielded to a more glorious prince and surrendered to a more valiant leader whose fame shall be silenced by no ages or cycles of years, for the victorious and triumphant Emperor Justinian and his consul, Belisarius, shall be named and known as Vandalicus, Africanus, and Geticus. Mm -hmm. right, it's a, it is, you see there where they may have gotten this idea from, right? Uh, but it's also a relatively perfunctory, or like you almost have to do this, right? Just to, in order to get published in, <laughs> in Constantinople, uh, the it's it's like, uh, oh, it's 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 uh, one of those things that you just have to do. You have to yeah. praise the emperor, right? I think uh, so. I think that's 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 a very fair way to look at it, and, and also the way I look at it. Uh, and so, so they, they, they took this at the end and it's like, oh, well, okay, so this is what he says at the end that he's doing. So this is much what he must have been doing the whole way through. We just, it's just very hard to see, <laughs> I will say. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, so, and, and you can kind of, you can very much forgive them for, for taking Giordani's word seriously, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. we should do this. We, we, should, we should pay attention closely to what our authors are saying and not try to impose our own ideas on them. Uh, this is a, a, a you know a, a sacred duty that we have in yeah. understanding these texts. Um, the problem, though, in this case, is that 
the praise for Justinian just isn't there <laughs> in the Getica. Right. Uh, the, the, the closest Jordanes gets to praising Justinian is that he calls him clever. Right. You know, not exactly ringing praise. Um, but what there is throughout the history is praise for the Goths and secondarily praise for Roman Gothic cooperation. And you simply can't ignore you know, thousands and thousands of words of pro-Gothic sentiment simply because at the very end, he said that he wrote a pro-Justinianic text. And so you have to ask what's going on. And, and this is where my views come in. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which here I'm considering a third school of thought. And yes, I'm, I'm fully aware of how self-important and self-indulgent. <laughs> no one has ever thought this before. Right? <laughs> but uh, in the 2,000 uh, years of get, oh, 1,500 years of people reading yeah. Getica. <laughs> it's, it's all me, David. It's all original, right? Well, I, um, heard, I heard one time you can't even publish as an academic without having a little bit of um, uh, delusions of grandeur. So it is. It, it, it certainly is. <laughs> think that your words deserve to last forever. Yeah. Right, yes. Um, and so, uh, so look, we have to, you can't just ignore Giordani's words at the end, like, like you said, like mm-hmm. you have to make sense of them. Um, and I think that we have to bear in mind what you said, that, that these words were sort of expected, they were perfunctory, and we need to remember the context, the very specific context in which he was writing. That is the imperial capital of the Roman Empire, Constantinople, in the midst of a Roman war to destroy Gothic Italy. And he was writing a text with a pretty radically different take on the Goths, right? It portrays them as glorious and civilized, and it singles out moments of Romans and Goths fighting side by side, achieving great things together. Uh, So in the midst of, you know, what is not a freedom of speech, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there was a lot of license and, and freedom in in Byzantium comparable to other places, but the emperor could still have you killed for, you know, for dishonoring his name. Oh yes. Oh yes. And, and Jordanes contemporary, a much more famous historian Procopius, he writes of quote, Justinian's legions of spies that, you know, that, that, that are seeking out his political the enemies. Thought police. So, yeah. Sure. Right. And so uh, you, there is no freedom of speech. You can't just write whatever you want, though it wasn't an atmosphere of terror and fear by any means. Mm. Um, so in, in looking at his texts and looking at all of this pro-Gothic sentiment, you have to understand that Giordano's wasn't, he was not echoing Justinianic propaganda. I think he was countering it. And that's not exactly the, the most safe thing to do. And <laughs> no, so I think exactly. just... Just to, to, to back up what you said as well, that he was, he was trying to cover his tracks a bit. So I think he, we, we can see this as kind of a, a safety coding. And okay. uh, I, I mean, I mentioned this before, but, you know, I, I have seen this, uh, you know, you read in uh, Antiquity, Antiquities of the Jews, right? Where Josephus, mm-hmm. who is a Jew, but he wants to write to a Roman audience about the Jews and pre- preserve their history. And then how can you do that? They've been conquered by the Romans and were still kind of seen as, you know, pariahs or, you know, as lesser citizens. Um, and what he does is he goes to the rhetoric and he says, well, as the ancient rhetorical teachers said, you can't praise the deeds of someone heroic unless you show the strength of the ones they conquered. Mm, right. Yes. And then he uses that as a, as a pretext, I think, to write a, a somewhat, 
uh, you know, a, a write a history of the Jews that is not completely just, oh, these were animals that we subjugated and finally gave Roman culture. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and interesting. Creating that space for yourself, this justification for a project that you really want to do <laughs> or something you really want yeah. to do. Precisely. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's no way that Giordanes could have written a, a purely anti-Roman pro-Gothic history, right? Right. He does, he does both at the same Although time. he goes close. I mean, he, he talks about specific emperors as, you know, liars and thieves and lascivious, lascivious and, you know, oh, yes. whoremongers and, <laughs> you know, sure use the money that they were supposed to pay to the Goths as, as essentially just for their own pleasures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he never blames the Goths for any sort of wrongdoing. He, he will blame uh, certain Roman emperors. But Jordanes has a bit of cover there because there is a tradition in Roman history writing of, quote, bad emperors. Right, exactly. So Romans can blame Roman misdoing uh, or Roman misdeeds on bad emperors. They, they, they did so regularly. As long as you do the right emperors, right? Correct. <laughs> the wrong, the right, the, the right bad emperors. The right bad emperors. So you don't, don't badmouth the wrong ones, <laughs> the ones that are held in higher regard. Yep. Or that are in, so, the, in the lineage of uh, certain people that you don't want to get on the wrong side of. That's, that's precisely right. <laughs> uh, all politics, so, so all politics. The, the safety coding we've, we've, we've accounted for. So mm -hmm. why he, why he says this about Justinian, but we still have to explain Jordanes his overall purposes in writing this. Right. What I think this strikingly revisionist version of history. Um, and and revisionist, think, not in the way that it, it's necessary, you know, more, you know, sometimes revisionist is seen as a derogatory term because it mm, means like yeah. you're 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 revising the facts to fit you better. But it it doesn't mean that it was any less accurate than the established history. Sure. Yeah. So he's he's arguing for just to understand this from a different slant. And I think the the way to access this his his new slant is to is for us to keep in mind that he was after all a Roman goth, right? He had. He had served in the Roman armies under a general who was also a Roman Goth. Uh, and it's, 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 it's next to certain that Jordanes would have served alongside other Romanized Goths in his time in the, in the Roman military uh, in the Balkans. And so Jordanes' very life was like this testament to the fact that, that Roman and Gothic cultures were, they were reconcilable. And so he wrote, or in a sense rewrote, the past to show exactly this, that in order to promote a, a greater political and military reconciliation between Goths and Romans in a time of war, he wrote a history that itself reconciles Gothic culture to Roman culture. And I think he was, he was trying to affect some sort of immediate change in the present by writing about the past. And uh, I think it's also important to, to recognize that what he was competing with, the narratives he was competing with, were also not historically founded narratives, right? I mean, the, the narrative about the Romans being uh, refugees from Troy, I believe. Yes, absolutely. Right, in Priam. You know, I was like, you know, this, these, all these stories, um, you know, also imbued with a lot of myth, a lot of and a lot of uh, divine, you know, signs of divine favor for Romans and etc. And you know, so all these things, there, there's, there's no kind of dry, objective histories that he's competing with. 
Uh, and these things were seen as, I would say, good form for a history writer, right? That was, uh, that was what a history writer was supposed to do, was supposed to entertain, was supposed to create a connection, perhaps, of a people with, with the gods, with the divine favor in some ways, um, with the great myths of the past. Yeah, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's a mistake for us modern people living, you know, in the wake of the scientific revolution with our, with our scientific materialist worldviews. It's a mistake for us to think that that's always how people have thought. Yeah. You know, people Definitely. just had, had, had radically different ways of perceiving reality and, and, and accepting the, a variety of, of, of ways of, of, of structuring reality and structuring truth. Um, and so it, it, Giordani's wasn't necessarily being duplicitous in, in offering this new take on the past. Uh, I mean, the, the Romans themselves, you know, good old thoroughly Roman Romans who wrote Roman histories uh, would, would, would take different, different angles in the past and offer different explanations of why things happened in the past or where the Romans came from or, or different versions of quote unquote Roman myths. Mm. And so the ancients were, were open to accepting different versions and open to accepting that that writers had certain purposes in in in, in stressing certain versions over the others and so i mean it, rhetor as, if, rhetorically i could kind of just uh give as an example you know it's accepted at the beginning of a speech you can start with a completely fictional story if it makes a point mm, and establishes yeah. a certain truth or a way of thinking about things certainly yeah right? i think and, it's it's important for us moderns to differentiate between facts and truth in a sense mm, that's history history writers cared about capital t truth more than than getting every single little fact right right it's like the overall impression and also the a kind of certain aesthetic qualities right that needed to be maintained yes yes the readers and, and listeners um would have expected certain story beats certain types of um of uh uh ethical ethically edifying stories and things like this right and so, uh, there are certain dictates of genre that had to be followed and uh, you know and that and that would also be you know sometimes you can get perhaps that history accepted and widespread and popular because it's so well written uh and especially as someone trying as controversial a project as him that would be something he would try to marshal all those literary qualities that he could right to to make this a popular work that could have some kind of impact and become popular at the court, hopefully, and have some yep. people liking this kind of story. Most certainly. And we, and we shouldn't think that we moderns don't do this either. I mean, mm. countries and cultures have their, the versions of their past that they prefer. Right. Even if, if that version of the past might be contrary to colder, harder facts. So we still do I mean, that's, you know... You're teaching in America. <laughs> yes, precisely. Yes, I, I the, current, it's the current, uh, the current uh, moment has, uh, you know, history is as as t uh, as tense and as uh, controversial, and especially about the story we tell ourselves about our founding. Right? Um, oh, yeah. we have this, you know, back with you know Snorri Sturluson and his uh, the ones who had the other version of history. They're dead now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Americans still are living with a huge part of the population with the other version of history. Oh yes, yes. Right. I think I think that that accounts for a large part of the political divide is that we actually have different stories. We have different narratives in our minds mm. about how reality works, and so we're just, we're thinking and talking past each other uh, for historical reasons. But yeah. anyway, we shouldn't 
Anyway, let's we'll go back to uh, so. But again, like I said, history and rewriting history, um, writing history and rewriting history. Uh, it's uh, it makes an argument, right, about what the past was, and the past has implications for the f- for the present, what the present looks like, and what we should do in the present, what the future should look like. Right? Uh, a Romans versus Goths uh, is very different than the Romans and the Goths versus the Huns and the other barbar- barbarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, story, right? So um, uh, let's go go a little bit to the prologue here at the beginning. So he introduces with a prologue, and uh, I recognize this from a lot of rhetorical texts where you have this little like pre pre story, right? And it's sometimes it's some publications even just like delete that pre story altogether. They don't see it as relevant, um, but I see it as very relevant because there's something that they're doing with setting that stage. Uh, and there's some things they say there about their purposes that that um, sometimes that sometimes give you important clues to interpret the rest of the text. So uh, at the beginning he says, uh, though it had been my wish to glide in my little boat by the shore of a peaceful coast, and as a certain writer says, to g- gather little fishes from the pools of the ancients, you, brother Castelius, bid me set my sails towards the deep. You urge me to leave the little work I have in my hand, that is, the abbreviation of the Chronicles, and to condense in my own style, in this small book, the twelve volumes of the Senator of the Origin and Deeds of the Gete, from olden time to the present day, descending through the generations of kings, truly a hard command, and imposed by one who seems unwilling to realize the burden of the task. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like in, so it's like a letter at the beginning. It uh, reminds me of Cicero, you know, writing and saying, okay, this is why I'm going to now talk about the, on the perfect orator and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And so w- what do you think he's doing here at the beginning uh, in this uh, in this prologue? He's, he's doing a lot. Uh, in fact, um, I've got a, an entire chapter of the book dedicated just to the, uh, just to the preface, but um, we'll, we'll go over just, I think, the most salient features here. Uh, so I already mentioned that scholars have long believed, and some still do, that that Giordano simply just summarized the Gothic history of Cassiodorus. Right. That's, and that's rooted right here in what you just read. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Giordano addresses his friend uh, for whom he's writing the Gattaca. And he says, you friend, you've asked me to summarize the 12 volumes of Cassiodorus. But right there, the old, this old school scholarly approach stops and plants its flag. And they pretty much seem to have ignored the rest of the prologue. Uh, because these, this old model so desperately wanted to get access to Cassiodorus. Now, why Cassiodorus? What, what's the big deal there? Um, they believed, these scholars, that, that because the Ostrogothic king Theodoric the Great commissioned Cassiodorus to write this work, which is true, by the way, mm-hmm. and because Cassiodorus worked for the Ostrogothic regime, then they assumed Cassiodorus must have had access to real Gothic oral history when he wrote this stuff. And so these scholars, they didn't want Cassiodorus's words per se. What they wanted access to were the tribal memories that they assumed that he preserved. And so when they, when they do this, what they're, they're, they're effectively erasing not only Giordano's, but also Cassiodorus to get at what is supposedly Gothic oral history. Um, but as I mentioned, uh, the prologue goes on to say other things. Um, the prologue basically has the following rhetorical structure. He says, uh, my friend, you've asked me to condense the history of Cassiodorus, comma, but 
And then he lifts a whole bunch of reasons why he ended up writing something rather different. Right. He says, he says that at some earlier point he had read Cassiodorus back when Cassiodorus's servant had allowed him to borrow it for three days, yeah. but yeah, for three days and scholars have really gotten hung up on that three days. <laughs> uh, you'd be surprised how much ink has been spilled on the, on that three days. And what, what does that mean? How well could Cassie or could Jordanes have known Cassiodorus? Right. Um, so Jordanes says he read Cassiodorus before, but when he wrote the Getica, he did not have access to the original Cassiodoran text. Um, he admits that he does not remember its words and only its general sense. In the Latin, there's sensus, right. general sense. Uh, and so this very clearly raises doubts about Giordano's ability or really even his intention to write a faithful summary. Um, and then he goes on to say that he added various things from Greek and Latin histories. And he added his own introduction, his own conclusion, and, quote, many things of my own authorship. Inserted many things of my own authorship. Exactly, yes. yes. Mm -hmm. Plura, plura in media. Eadictione. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, he says, basically at the very end, uh, so don't give me a hard time for not getting exactly what you asked for. Just be happy I sent you something. <laughs> uh, and so I think like this, this establishes his initial rhetorical proposition uh, that he was asked to summarize Cassiodorus. And then he gives a series of qualifications that end up diminishing the reader's expectations that about that initial proposition. Right. And so I, it's like, I, it's, it's, this is not going to be Cassiodorus at all, essentially. Like this is, sure. yeah. Uh, and so the reader, if you're paying attention, the reader's left with this thinking that the Getica must have something to do with Cassiodorus's text or else it, he just, Jordanus wouldn't have mentioned it. Uh, but that it was still very much shaped by other classical texts and Giordano's own authorship, his own ideas. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, we, I think it's also worth bearing in mind that um, Cassiodorus, the man, and his Gothic history were both physically present in Constantinople at the exact same time that the Getica appeared. Right. And, and if it were the case that Giordanes had simply summarized Cassiodorus and then made false claims about it being original, I think Giordanes would have been found out, in, you know, his dishonesty would have been discovered pretty quickly. Yeah, right. I think so. And, yeah, I think so too. And so if his, it's unclear why the text of a, of, of a, of a dishonest author would have been kept and preserved, but Giordanes' text clearly has been kept and preserved. And whereas Cassiodorus's has not, right? Right. Uh, and so I think there's, I think here we need to pay attention to Giordano's words. And, and I, th just, I think, yeah, and I think uh, people reading it may have thought that whether it's more original or so, but, you know, sometimes there's obviously can be different reasons for why one work is uh, preserved and another one is not. But uh, it may very well be that um, this was a literary hit, whereas uh, Cassidorus's just was not. In the same way that mm -hmm. this, that people saw this to be um, literary superior to Cassiodorus and um, or, yeah. a much more or, or, interesting read of, of, of the Gothic history. Yeah, or, or useful in some way that Cassiodorus's text wasn't mm. uh, because, because we, we don't have any contemporary, that is to say, 6th century attestations of Jordanus text, but we start seeing more and more and more in the Middle Ages and in the high, early Middle Ages and High Middle Ages uh, his text becomes uh, regularly cited. 
uh, by, by medieval scholars. And so his text didn't seem to have become an, an overnight success, but, but gained, but what was copied nonetheless. Was, there was enough there to, to copy yes. it further. Yeah. But so, exactly. so we, we just don't have evidence of it being popular, but it, it clearly was popular enough to be copied. Right. And, um, and more so than probably more so than Cassidore's. Yes, I think so. And uh, so he starts with uh, this uh, this vast uh, overview of uh, of the geography as or most of it is as, as it was known back then, and uh, take goes uh, you know the vast expanse of these uh, of Europe, Africa, and Asia. That was kind of the continents, and then north of Europe, not actually a part of Europe, but north of Europe, there is this island he calls it right. Mm-hmm. Um, that is Scansia, Scansia, uh, and there for me, obviously, I just, you know, uh, I the reason I I found Jordanus in the first place is I was looking for the first place where, um, the uh, the ones that the tribe, say the tribe that gave name to the place where I live, Grenland, mm-hmm. the Grani, where they're mentioned for the very very first time in historical sources, and it's Jordanus. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gives a description of Norway that and uh, Sweden that a lot of people uh, in Norway and Sweden could, I think, could recognize. You know, there. I mean, I don't know quite about the point that he says that. You know, he says the land is not only inhospitable to men but cruel even to wild beasts. Yeah. <laughs> in the very <laughs> north, north, it's so cold that wolves lose their sight. <laughs> uh, but uh, he talks about the, you know. In the northern part of the island, the race of the Adugit live, which we called uh, Holugolan, uh, who are said to have continual light in the midsummer for 40 days and nights, and who likewise have no clear light in the winter season for the same number of days and nights. By reason of this alteration of sorrow and joy, they are like no other race in their suffering and blessings. And why? Because during the longer days they see the sun returning to the east along the rim of the horizon, but on the shorter days it is not thus seen. The sun shows itself differently because it is passing through the southern signs, and whereas to us the sun seems to rise from below, it seems to go around them, along the edge of the earth. And um, you know, I, I, you know, you, we know about the north degree that he's he's talking about here, and uh, I can say it's about uh, it's almost uh, four p.m. here, and it's getting dark outside. <laughs> and it's only October. And it's only October. Yeah, and I'm not in the north of Norway. This is uh, this is much further north than where I live, several degrees higher, higher up. And um, but my cousin lives up there. And there are also other peoples. They use uh, the Skridfinna or Skridfinna, as it's translated into the Norwegian text. Uh, very clearly, the Sami population. Do you say you see grain for food, but live on the flesh of wild beasts and birds' eggs? For there's much multitude of young game in the swamps, as to provide for the natural increase of their kind for satisfaction of the things of their people. There's the Svehans, which is Sveana, or the Sveana, for where Sweden comes from. Sveana, Svehans. Uh, there's uh, a lot of other ones that are very also very familiar here. Others are not familiar. There's the Gautiguts, the different kind of Goths. There's the Goths, there's the Dani, the Danes. Um, there's the Rømmarike and Ragnarike. So there are places in Norway called Rømmarike and Ragnarike. Or, or Ringerike, mm-hmm. um, that again are in the very earliest written texts in Norway. We find those same names. 
um, which may or may not have contact with the uh, with Jordanus, the Finns, um, and uh, we have the uh, Granni, which is where I live, the Granne, uh, and the Tetel, that's the Telemark, Tetelmark, um, mm-hmm. that's uh, what the county I'm living in is called. Um, the Egansi, uh, Agdne, Rogne, Haruki, or Hordene, Ranene, all these tribes, you know, like I can show you in Norway, and there's Rogaland, Hordaland, all from all these all these tribes have you know the the places and names and uh, that, as far as I know, go quite for far back and uh, were not like later imposed by people reading Jordanus. Sure, and I I confess that I don't know my medieval Scandinavian history as well as I might, but we were talking a bit earlier, and you mentioned that there there are. Eighth or ninth century texts that attest to several of these of these names. Right. Uh, is, is that right? So, is do you know if these texts are eighth or ninth century, or are they later and then talking about the eighth and ninth century? Well, they're part of the same scholarly community. I, I, I'm, I have to commit con, uh, confess. I'm, I'm not. I'm not certain about that myself. But I do know that uh, I, I think it would be very strange for these people. There are people. Uh, there are people there, like like say themselves. And this is my name, and I'm of, of this tribe. I'm a Ruge. I'm this. There are people that say also I'm I'm a Goth. I'm Guta. And their their last name sometimes is Sven Guta and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. In the Swedish area, the Göta Elv, Goth, close to Gothenburg, there's a river called the Gothen Goth River or the Go- yep. Go- the River of the Goths. Um, Gotland, you know all these all these things. I find it hard to believe that these things were later imposed based on people reading Jordanus. Yeah, um, it's these. You'd be surprised how how many debates have have erupted over these these questions. Um, though it 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 seems to me quite clear that the Scandinavian portion of Jordanus uh, Gedeka here, he's talking about probably roughly Scandinavia that's roughly contemporary with himself. So yeah, this, so this, 500, this, yeah. Yeah, so this that's, is that's still earlier than any of the Scandinavian sources. So that's right. uh, just like blows my blew my mind when I first read that. It's like, whoa. So some some scholars have argued that th- th- there's no way these these tribes could have been around in back in the Bronze Age like 1500 BC. Right. But, but Jordan is, is not talking about Scandinavia in 1500 BC. He's talking about it around, you know, 550 or or, or just the, the the 6th century in general. Right. Um and so and if these names crop up again in 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 early medieval Scandinavian sources, I mean that 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 holds. Um, I mean, it just just shows again that he was, you know, even though perhaps the part about the Amazons maybe is just mythical here, but uh, that he read widely, that he had uh, he had sources. Uh, I think it uh, it speaks to at least the authenticity of at least some of his work. Yes, the uh, and the question about things like Gotland. Mm. Uh, I mean, the, these these the place names are a strong argument in in favor of those who want to uh, want to argue that Scandinavia was the homeland of the Goths. Um, but there are plenty of arguments on the other side. So there were there are very much respectable scholars on on both sides of this question. And I, I like to say uh, also there there's uh, there's a lot of place names also in Norway that have gout gout in them gout 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 yes gout right. gout gout yeah. Yeah, and um, and so, so some argue that these words are all the same, and they point toward the Goths. Others argue that these are 
similar sounding names that aren't the Goths. So for example, right. the, the Geats in Beowulf. So Beowulf is a Geat, G-E-A-T. Mm. Some, some have tried to say, well, that that's Goth. And some have said, well, no, it's different. Um, and so, uh, you know, these, these are unsettled debates. Mm. And um, sadly, we don't have living Goths to tell us, right? We don't. <laughs> the, 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 or that have the people the, who wear all black and, and wear white face paint aren't. Yeah, they're not the they're not the descendants of these people. <laughs> ethnically gothic per se. But. Yeah, uh, although the culturally, I've actually seen out find out where why it's related, like culturally, right? So the the uh, goths were kind of like the barbarians, uh, and then later when they built like when there was these gothic churches built, they called that mm. style. The Renaissance people called that style, looking back on it, Gothic, because, oh, that's barbarian, that's the Dark Ages. Right. Uh, and then the Romantics came back, oh, Gothic, that's uh, when we weren't so <laughs> darn reasonable all the time. We actually had could listen to our feelings. <laughs> Precisely right. <laughs> Therefrom yep. comes the Gothic novels, and uh, from that again come the, the Gothic uh, song genre, or mu- music genre, and the Goths, right? Yep, that's the, the whole subculture. That's, that's right. It's the, it's the barbarians, it's the... <laughs> It's the ones more in, more in, more in tune with their emotions, just yeah, not not uh, overly driven by by ambition and mind and yeah, and uh, logical systems. And and Giordano's, he sets up Scandinavia to be this like the most barbarian place you could imagine, right? So right. so so the the classical. Mindset. Like even even the wolves go blind. That's how cold it is, yeah. and people live there. <laughs> if, the, if the wolves are going blind, think of the people. Think how hard right. the people. Think of like and it says like all these nations surpassed the Germans in size and spirit and fought with the cruelty of wild beasts. Yeah. Now from so, this from this island of Skansas, from a hive of races or womb of nations, the Goths are said to have come forth long ago under their king Berig by name. Right. Yeah. And this is this is the this is the birthplace of this hard warrior-like people. Yes, yes. So more. So that. So he mentions that he says very specifically that the Goths and these other Scandinavians are are taller and and, and mightier than even the Germans. And right. the Ger- why that matters is that the Germans were kind of the barbarian par excellence in the bar in the Roman imagination. Right. And so he upping the ante. These these ones uh, are greater. Right. So. So even the, more the Germans more. were scared of these guys. <laughs> sure, right. And so, you know, so the, the north, the far north here is playing the role it's always played in the classical mind that the farther you get away from from the middle, quote unquote, middle of the world, which is the Mediterranean world, mm. uh, the more savage you get, the less reasonable you get, sort of the less human and moderate you get. Um, and we so, talked about how this has kind of changed today, hasn't it? Oh yes, right. Certainly. Where the the global south has become the further south you go, the more you know. Yeah. Now it's the these uh, the green horror of the Amazon and the cannibals and etc. Mm-hmm. Still yeah. playing as a role in our imagination. Yeah, it yeah. It's all it's all relative to sort of points of political power. And so as they leave, and they evidently left because there were too many on this place, Golgotland couldn't uh, sustain them, and so they decided to. Uh, essentially draw lots, I think, and then a certain amount of the people were supposed to leave. Um, and then they went... It's never exactly explained why they leave, which is, which is interesting. They just mm. leave. Yeah, they just leave, yeah. Um, uh, although the, the way it's described here, definitely, it seems like there are a lot of tribes and the, there is a lot of raiding between the tribes. Um, 
and the the ones they're fighting against are just about as savage as they are, or about as strong and and, and tall as they are. Sure. And, and see, it says even the Dani actually, the Danes were actually um, who traced the origin to the same stock drove from their homes the Heruli, who lay claim to the preeminence among the nations of the Skansa for their tallness. Uh, so there are a lot of other tough people here, right? Really, really, um, and it seems seems like there may have been a lack of space, for a better word, or kind of a, a definitely very competitive environment for for living. Sure. Uh, and this and this is it's important to keep this kind of story in mind. The story of of the migrating people going off somewhere to to found a new land, to find a new home. Uh, to seek their destiny elsewhere. This is an old uh, mythological trope, which is not to say it's to be to be not believed or to be the wandering aside, people. But the wandering people, right, is a, is a is a is a common origin story of various ethnic groups, including the Romans. The Romans you, yeah. Yes, you mentioned it earlier. The Romans also had this. They believed that they were from Troy, from Asia Minor, and that they they, that they wandered to Italy to to, to found their destiny. And interestingly, if we zoom out, the Goths also end up in Italy. Like that's, that, that's, that's their final home. And mm. so the, the destinies of, of Goths and Romans here are being paralleled very purposefully, I think, uh, by Giordani's in his attempt to civilize and Romanize and, and to reconcile Roman and Gothic cultures. Yeah, and, and the further south they go, so they decide to leave Skansa, they go to the Vistula River, so, uh, and Poland, Gothic Skansa. Uh, I guess and it's the area there, and then they go further towards the Black Sea, and they meet meet the Romans. And he says he goes back to the Roman tropes of the barbarians as being savage, right? And and he says yes, they were, they were. It's true, they were. Um, Mars has always been worshipped by the Goths with cruel rites, and captives were slain as his victims. They brought the. They thought that he was the lord of the war, ought to be appeased by the shedding of human blood. To him they devoted the first share of their spoil, and in his arm, honor, arms stripped from the foe were suspended from trees. And they had, more than all other races, a deep spirit of religion, since, since the worship of this god seemed to be really bestowed upon their ancestor. So, you know, they did have a kind of uh, human sacrifice, believed in the, the god of war, kind of ferocious, you know, uh, untamed, uh, a certain gallantry, a certain... Uh, nobleness still to them, a deep history, deep spirit of religion, as they talked about. But and that's crucial. That's absolutely right. crucial. Like so, so, so you might think that he's just describing these savages, but he, he points out their piety, right? And this this is something that the Romans prided themselves in. So and um, so they weren't that, they were, weren't really um, say it this way they they were good but misinformed kind of in a way, or they had very many good traits, but they just didn't know about Christianity yet. Right. And, and, and the and, Romans and, and civilization. say the same thing about themselves. Like, right. like Rome, the Romans knew at one point they, they were pagans, you know, and they, they eventually uh, achieved a quote unquote higher state. Um, and so, uh, yes, this, this being, being restrained and pious in their religion is, is, is Jordanes paying them a compliment. Um, and this is what Polybius back in the second century BC said about the Romans. He said the Romans, you know, beyond all other people's, uh, uh, took took religion seriously, right? And so, so he's again he's 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 drawing a line here using the same trope, yeah, yeah, right. 
And uh, he says, uh, then comes this uh, Gaius Tiberius. Is that right? No, that's uh, Decinius. Uh, this this Roman that comes among them and civilizes them. Right. Yeah, so and uh, outside outside force, yeah. He taught them almost the whole of philosophy, for he was a skilled master of the subject. Thus, by teaching them ethics, he restrained their barbarous customs. By imparting a knowledge of physics, he made them live naturally under laws of their own, which they possess in written form from this day and call Belagines. Belagines? He taught them logic and made them skilled in reasoning beyond all other races. He showed them practical knowledge and persuaded them to abound in good works. By demonstrating theoretical knowledge, he urged them to contemplate the twelve signs and the courses of the planets passing through them the whole of astronomy. He told them how the disk of the moon gains increase or suffers loss and showed them how much of the fire globe of the sun exceeds in our size our earthly planet. Uh, By the way, yeah, uh, another one there, another... uh, hole in the in, in the common co- conception that everyone thought the earth was the center of the universe and the earth was bigger than the sun and so on um, yes. but think i pray you what pleasure it was for these brave men when for a little space they had leisure from warfare to be instructed in the teachings of philosophy yay <laughs> isn't that great <laughs> you, made a, you might have seen someone scanning the position of heaven and another investigating the nature of plants and bushes here stood one who studied the waxing and the waning of, waning of the moon while still another regarded the labors of the sun and observed how those bodies were hastening to go toward the east while or whirled around and borne back to the west by the rotation of the heavens. When they had learned seven, seven, the reason, they were at rest. These and very other manners, Decenius taught the Goths. Uh, you know, just essentially they have become, they have not just become students of philosophy, but they, you know, sucked up all of it. They just loved it. <laughs> they were just... Absolutely, the most the best students ever, right? <laughs> it's, it's great, isn't it? So he he portrays them as these 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 this warlike nation um, that that Mars himself was born among them, and they're worshippers of Mars, and yet they're like these consummate scholars and philosophers, <laughs> astronomers. It's just great, you know. Um, but uh, but you're but again. Right. So, it says, so it says we were barbarians. They were barbarians, but they're not anymore. That was a long time ago. They have been. Civilized, they've been civilized for a very long time. Yes, very civilized. Right. Um, uh, as uh, he mentions, what the, 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 the they're known for their spirit of, of, of intellectual inquiry. They're, they're almost the equal of the Greeks. He said, you know, uh, and so he's he's rehabilitating. There's another scholarly jargony term: rehabilitating their their image and their past here. And uh, uh, as a part of this rehabilitation, right? He uh, then has to, I think the trope of the barbarian is just so strong in the Roman uh, contemporary history writing that he's, he's part of or that he's kind of participating in, um, that he needs to find another barbarian. Right. Well, you, you can't have a classical history without a barbarian menace. <laughs> right. You can't, you can't do that. It has to because it's all about the defense of civilization, right? And so, uh, this is where enter the Huns, right? They mm-hmm. become they are they are the barbarian menace. Menace. The Goths are not the barbarians, guys. The Huns. The Huns are the barbarians. Go further east. Go to more people that don't look like us. <laughs> and it's a it's a it's a pretty fair rhetorical move because even in our minds. I think among modern, modern Westerners, like the barbarian from the ancient world, I think people would say the Huns yeah, first. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, Second World War, 
uh, it wasn't the Germans that were the barbarians. Uh, they were just kind of crazed, you know, scientists. Yeah. But uh, it was the return of some of our own dark stereotypes. But the barbarians, that was the Japanese. Right. Precisely. Who didn't even know what Western civilization was about. Nazis, they were rejecting Western civilization. Japanese had just never learned it. Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. So the Huns, they show up and they shake things up and they shake the narrative up and they shake the Jordanes. Um, up until this point in the narrative, the Goths had never lost a battle. And so their history begins around 1500 BC. Um, and this, and the Huns enter the historical stage in the, uh, in the fourth century here. So that's a, a very long time of never having lost a battle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Even against the Egyptians and whatever else there. <laughs> uh, and and the, um, the strays from their, what the, the deserters from their army being becoming the Parthians mm-hmm. and so on. Yes, exactly. They helped, they helped find the, the they helped found the Median empire and all this anyway. Right. Um, and so uh, the Huns show up on the historical stage because, they actually did. This is not just part of Jordani's refashioning of history. From the east, right? Coming, coming from, from the, the from the Asian steppes, or yeah, we could say, most yes, likely. Um, in fact, it's it's useful for students of history to conceive of Eastern Europe as the far western edge of of Central Asia. Yeah, because right? I mean, there were no great separations between these continents. Yep. And so, yes, the the Huns show up and. Um, and they interrupt the narrative here. Giordano says it splits the Goths who were previously fully united, supposedly, mm-hmm. into two groups, uh, the Visigoths on the one hand and the Ostrogoths on the other. And uh, according to Giordano's, the Ostrogoths become subject to the Huns north of the Danube and so still in, in, in barbarian Europe, whereas the Visigoths, they they uh, approach the Roman Empire and asked to be admitted into Roman territory as, as desperate refugees, right. essentially. Or be given, a, be given a home. Right. Uh, and then there's this famous story of how the Romans exploit these Gothic refugees to the point where they were selling the Goths dog carcasses yeah. at the price of, of selling Gothic children into slavery. Right. And so, uh, and even even Roman sources like Ammianus Marcellinus admit that this is what happened, that the Romans did not handle this well, and um, and this incurred a revolt among the Goths, and they raided and they ended up defeating the Romans at the Battle of Adrianople in 378, where the Emperor Valens was slain uh, on the field of battle. Uh, a few years later, the Goths and Romans reach an agreement, and the Goths are settled inside of Roman territory. And they're happy there, it seems like, as long as they, you know, are paid their dues uh, for defending, essentially, the borders of the Roman Empire against right. the other the other incursions of other barbarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, seem to be like their natural state where, where they're very happy. Is they're very happy in alliance or working together with the Romans. They only right. ever break that relationship when the Romans force them to, essentially. Right, right. Um by, you know, as you mentioned before, duplicitous or treacherous rulers. Um, eventually, this group of Goths kind of sort of ends up sacking the city of Rome in 410. The Visigoths, yeah. <laughs> But Jordanes does a little bit of spin work here and says, actually, it was because of the treachery of the Western Roman emperor, our general Stilicho. Right. This is Alar- Alaric now, right, isn't it? 
Yes. Yeah. Alaric, the leader of the Goths, that Jordanes calls a king. Mm-hmm. Other sources don't call him king. Uh, but Jordanes blames this on the treachery of Stilicho and not on... And, and he even says they sacked Rome, but they didn't sack it as bad as some other barbarians did. <laughs> it's like, look, they went easy. And they, they went respected easy the holy. Yeah. They respected the churches. Yes. Uh, and so they're, again, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're sacking Rome, but this, these aren't barbarians. These are just, you know, people, you know, being warlike and Romans are warlike. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with being warlike. Right. And uh, uh, again, and uh, sometimes they even do so and, we come to that later, but Theodoric doing this at the behest of the Eastern Roman Empire against em, Emperor against the against oh, yes. against Italy, right? So they they work. It seems like there's a lot of politics in here, and it's it's almost like you know, yeah, we sacked Rome, but so did this other Roman army against this other Roman general, and so on. Sure. Or and then very shortly after he mentions the sack of Rome, the the Visigoths establish their kingdom in Gaul, in Aquitania, in the southwest of Gaul. And then Jordanes very quickly reverts back rhetorically to establishing that the Goths and Romans reestablish their friendship and the Goths keep fighting other barbarians in the name of the Romans. So they fight the Franks, they fight the Vandals, right. so on and so forth. But then eventually, a few decades later, the Huns reemerge. The Huns continue their, their push westward. Under the they, leadership of Attila, who becomes... This time of Attila. Right. right. It was the uh, ultimate... I can say not ultimate evil, but he is the ultimate menace to yeah. civilization because he is cunning. He is a brilliant strategist, and he is absolutely bloodthirsty and absolutely merciless. Absolutely, he's he's a, he's a tyrant. He's treacherous. He is the menace, and has a dream from very early on. I will rule the world, right? Kind of almost like a prophetic yeah. dream about that, um, so and. The origin of those, though, like the way he describes here the Huns, right? Um, I think he uses a lot of stereotypes that the um, the Romans themselves use about other barbarians, and including the Goths, right? You know, like mm-hmm. uh, I've, you know the Kipchaks, I believe, were described as the devil's brats by <laughs> the, the children of the devil by the by uh, Byzantine sources, um, except for when they were working for the for the the Christian armies of uh, King David of Georgia. Um, <laughs> but the, so there were unclean spirits, it said. So there were, they're Huns. They came from uh, certain witches that were driven out from the Goths. Yeah, so, so and, these, these women were Goths, living among the Goths, but they were driven out because they were found to be witches. Right. And then they found some... some and, well, actually, they were unclean spirits who beheld them to wander in solitary exile far from his army. Uh, uh, they wandered through the wilderness, bestowed their embraces upon them, and begat this savage race. So literally, the spawn of Satan, right, <laughs> or the Satan's devils, which dwelt at first in the swamps, a stunted, foul, a puny tribe, scarcely human, having no language save one which bore a slight resemblance to human speech. Such was the descent of the Huns who came to the country of the Goths, and uh, you know what we'd call here racist tropes, right? Uh, you just. Uh, what is the saying? Um, they made their face full of They made their foes flee in horror because their swarthy aspect was fearful, and they had, if I may say so, a sort of shapeless lump, not a head, with pinholes rather than eyes. <laughs> their hardihood is evident in their wild appearance, and there are beings who can be are cruel to their children on the very day they are born. For they cut the cheeks of the males with a sword so that before they receive the nourishment of milk, they must learn to endure wounds. 
Hence they grow old beardless, and the young men are without comeliness, because a face furrowed by the sword spoils by its scars the natural beauty of a beard. They are short in stature, quick in bodily movement, alert horse horsemen, and then he comes with some, you know, uh, broad-shouldered, ready in the use of bow and arrow, and have firm set necks which are ever erect in pride. Uh, though they live in the form of men, they have the cruelty of wild beasts. Now, where have we heard that before, right? That was the Goths before they were <laughs> before they got uh, civilized. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so um, here the the beast has returned, but this time it's not the Goths. Yes, and this time, and this time the Goths are crucial in in standing up against these these the new menace, the new barbarian beast, and. Uh, and so the Roman rest with the Western Roman emperor Valentinian the third contacts uh, the Visigoths under Theodoric the second, though Jordanes calls him Theodorid with a D on the end. We don't know why. Um, That's the emperor Valentinian now, right? Correct. The emperor Valentinian yeah. I'd like to um, like to read this message actually here because he, he, you know, I don't know if he had this or he made up this speech or he had this from other sources. Uh, but here it definitely makes a strong case, for, historical case for, look, you need us, or the, 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 the Romans and the Goths, they need each other. Sure, go ahead. Um, bravest of nations. This is what Emperor Valentinian sends this embassy to the Visigoths when Attila is essentially threatening, I'll kill you all. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you, and I'm going to turn you all against each other. He's trying to turn them against each other first, right? And he says, no, mm -hmm. we shouldn't do this. Bravest of nations, it is the part of prudence for us to unite against the Lord of the earth who wishes to enslave the whole world, who requires no cause, just cause for battle, but supposes whatever he does is right. He measures his ambition by his might. License satisfies his pride, despising law and right. He shows himself an enemy to nature herself. And thus, he who clearly is the common foe of each deserves the hatred of all. Pray remember what you surely cannot forget, that the Huns do not overthrow nations by means of war where there is an equal chance, but assail them by treachery, which is a greater cause for anxiety. To say nothing about ourselves, can you suffer such insolence to go unpunished? Since you are mighty in arms, give heed to your own danger and join hands with us in common. Bear aid also to the empire for which you hold a part, of which you hold a part. If you would learn how needful such an alliance is for us, look into the plans of the foe. You know, it's like, we need you. We need you. Bravest of all nations, we need you to defend civilization against this tyrant, this person that uh, that goes against nature itself, against logic and reason, who wants to, you know, is a tyrant, the 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 tyrant in all, you know, he's going to call it the topos of the tyrant, the, the archetypical tyrant who is uh, lustful, deceitful, um, but powerful. Oh, yes. He'll destroy everything. It's all there. It's all there. And um, uh, notice what, what Valentinian, the emperor, says here. Uh, Goths, defend the empire of which you hold a part. Right. You're and part of us. You're yes. part of it. It's that the Goths are distinct, right? They have their own kingdom, and yet at the same time, they're still part of this larger Roman commonwealth or something. Dardanus uh, so is always doing, he's always drawing parallels in between Goths and Romans and making them close, but also establishing that they are distinct peoples. Um, and so uh, they come together here as equals. He, he, he mentions their sweet comradeship. He calls them the two foremost nations of the world. Right. 
Um, they have to come together to 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 face the real barbarian threat. Well, to to save in more modern terms, Western civilization. Sure. Right. This yeah. is. I mean, this is exactly you know, very close to the rhetoric that was used again to for the. Um, I've been studying the scientists that made the first atomic bomb, and they talked about that. We we made the atomic bomb to save civilization. Uh, against these forces that would, you know, send civilization into a thousand years of darkness. Yeah, and so, so the Goths here are being portrayed as absolutely crucial in upholding uh, this Roman order. Um, and uh, civilization, right? That what what we'd be they've become a part of. And we have to always draw draw ourselves back to why Jordanes was doing this at the time he was doing this. Mm. Remember that the Goths and Romans are at war in their time. And so he's drawing attention back to this moment in which Goths and Romans were allies. They were brothers in arms. Came and, together. Yes. And, and they were fighting against this barbarian menace. And so Dardanes is saying indirectly here to his audience, that, look, the Goths aren't the barbarians. I mean, I don't care what the emperor is saying. Like, I'm establishing the Goths aren't the barbarians. In the past, they've stood up with Romans. Against, against the barbarians. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, they're victorious, right? At right. the battle of the, of the Catalonian plains. And, uh, and but the, the Huns are not quite destroyed because of the Romans. They kind of want them still as a factor there. They don't, I don't know if it's that they don't want the Visigoths to become too powerful or something, but they, they, um, for political reasons, it seems like they're not willing, willing at that point, at least to fully extinguish the Hun threat. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, God, the Romans aren't always portrayed in, in terms that are as idealized as he uses for the Roman or the, the for the Goths. Goths. Yeah, right. Because there's always there's a little bit always uh, a little bit of politicking there. Yes, yes, most certainly. And so it seems also well, it, the the uh, obviously the um, uh, irony is that at this gigantic battle of the Catalonian plains is this in in. Uh, so this is this Catalan? Is this actually in like uh, the area no. where the Barcelona is, or the no? Catalonian this is this Catalau- This is L A U. Yeah. Catalonian. Yeah. I thought so. Uh, it sounded like more like. Uh, what? Where is it's it? In, at? It's in it's in Gaul. Um, Gaul. Yeah. It, it's, in France, there are debates about where it would have taken place because Jordanes is the only our only source for it. Right. Um. But, but it's in um like central to eastern Gaul. Yeah. And uh, because at each side you have. Goths fighting, right? Oh, you yes. have the Ostrogoths uh, that are subjugated by the Huns, and the uh, Visigoths on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he writes right before this clash of arms that the what just cause can be found for the ca- encounter of so many nations, or what hatred inspired them to take arms against each other. It is proof that the human race lives for its kings. For it is the mad impulse, it is at the mad impulse of one mind a slaughter of nations takes place, and at the whim of a haughty ruler, that which nature has taken ages to produce perishes in a mom- moment. So what do you see going on there? Oh, Tell for, me I'm not I mean, I mean no, Yeah, so what I see is, uh, to a certain extent, anti-war rhetoric, right? This is here mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, you know, he's about to, tell about this huge battle it is the climax but at the same time he bemoans that this is something that's uh that's happening and because the certain leader wants to conquer 
or sir wants to rule or wants this thing to happen it's not the people themselves that want the battle and uh obviously there could be a certain uh rhetorical edge there towards justinian i think so i think it's i think it's indirect criticism right because so, this, this history is a history of of the goths and his other history is a history of the romans two peoples right and uh and he, he admits there in that quotation that you just gave that uh look people tend to just follow their kings this is this is kind of an unfortunate trait perhaps but this is what they do and it becomes unfortunate when there are bad kings who 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 upset uh the natural order of things who who are upset an otherwise productive and prosperous history with with destructive decision making and, and uh, yeah and, and you know again this is kind of the nature right uh, at the whim of a haughty ruler, that which nature has taken ages to reproduce perishes in a moment. Sure. So right. Nature is nature is trying to build, and then these tyrants, these madmen, these people lusting for power and riches and property, mm-hmm. destroy this natural beauty. This uh, what nature yeah. has built and erected and established. The proper state of affairs, the natural state of affairs, is for Goths and Romans to be comrades. And, and as they said, you know, the, the, that's the claim that he makes against Attila too, right? Is that he goes against nature herself. Despising law and right, he shows himself an enemy of nature herself. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the, nature is good. <laughs> sure. The tyrants are bad. Um, and then we have in uh, the also the speech from Attila, you know, showing that, I mean, I'm sure it was true, you know, the way he was, uh, the way he's recorded as speaking, you know, say if any here stand or at rest while Attila fights, he is a dead man. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, you know, he it's was... like, because he, he held these people in subjugation by fear to a great extent. I, I do think that that is true. Uh, it, it, he certainly did not build any lasting, deep, deeply rooted institutions of state. Right. Because as soon as he's dead, that empire, if you want to call it that, it was an extremely <clears throat> uh, powerful confederacy. It was short-lived and it just dissolves immediately upon his death. And so he was the one holding it together. Um, and he did so, in, yeah, sure, in large part by fear, but also in large part by my paying out loot like other right. barbarian. Right. Right. I mean, you know, uh, you'd be surprised uh, or not surprised, but you know, like he also talks about the archers being like a key to their victory and so on. It seems uh, almost like a proto Genghis Khan and Timurlenk and all these other, uh, you know, destroyers of the earth that come from the, from the, from the East, right. With these bands of skilled archers and horsemen. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, but the, at this battle, then there is, you know, it, he spends a lot of time building up to this battle, and then this battle happens, um, and it is the the uh, Visigoths that hold the hill, that take the hill that is the central focus of the battle, right? Mm. And that pay with the death of their king, um, Thorismid, I think, or is it? Yeah. No, not Thorismid, he's the one that takes over afterwards. As a son, yeah. So, so yeah. Theodoric the second in yeah. history, but he called Theodorid here. The right, story. Theodorid. That's right. And uh, so he's the one uh, that wins this for the Romans. He preserves civilization. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. But then yeah. the uh, Romans go about being all being all uh, two faced again. <laughs> 
Or like sometimes speak speak with cloven tongue, as you'd say, <laughs> <laughs> as the the uh, civilized people. They're obviously there's almost like the the goths are a bit more of noble in some ways. They aren't they aren't two faced. They aren't uh, they don't deceive. Sure, and uh, this was this is part of the old barbarian stereotype. Is not just that barbarians are animals, but rather they have not been poisoned by civilization. Right. They have, by greed and lust and and decadence, uh, right? Yeah, and so politics. Does not he does not call them. He does not call the the Goths barbarians anymore. Um, they still remain a kind of, you know, people of few words, people of a fighting spirit, people right. who are simple and straightforward. Right, honest. Right, and so th- so they maintain some of the the, the, the noble traits. Of of the old barbarian stereotype, but none of the negative ones. Right, and in the end, it's the uh, it's the Ostrogoths that turn upon the Huns and drove them so ingloriously from their own land that those who remained have been in dread of the arms of the Goths from that time down to the present day. It's in, in the end, it, you know, a lot of things, different things happen. Attila dies and so on, but in the end, it's the it is the Ostrogoths or the Goths that end up uh, driving away the last remnants of the Hunnic threat. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, but then. You don't have so so you have these uh, people in parallel, close together, but never a, a, anything close to kind of a unification of these people, right? And then that changes with Theodoric because here is someone who is a Goth, but he grows up at the uh, court in B- Byzantium, right, in in Constantinople, yes. um, because he's a, a say a, a political he's, hostage, political hostage, which interesting enough. Uh, Attila was too, right? <laughs> he grew up yeah. with the Romans, uh, but he was a political hostage uh, and grew up at the court. And he was, when he left the court at eighteen, he received great honors from the emperor. And then, um, at the behest of the Roman emperor, uh, he actually says, "Look, uh, my warriors are with the Goths. Are uh, he wins a lot of battles, and then he says they're they're restless. Look, the Italy right now is a mess." Let me take it over in your name, right? In the name of the Roman Emperor or the East Roman Emperor. Mm-hmm. So, right. So he's he becomes. Um, so he is got he is Jordanus in some ways, right? Uh, uh-huh. Gothic heritage, <laughs> but raised with Roman culture. But Romanized, yeah. Right? Jordanus says that Theodoric was born quote a child of good hope. Right. Right, and uh, uh, so he's this sort of this hope for reconciliation between Goths and Romans. He himself is this reconciliation of Roman and Gothic culture. Deservedly uh, gained imperial favor from Emperor Leo. Yeah, and but but I have to interject here. Historically speaking, Jordanes leaves out conveniently leaves out the history of conflict between Theodoric and the Eastern Roman emperors. Mm. So the history there is complicated. So sometimes Theodoric and the Goths are allies of Rome, and sometimes. Theodoric extracts uh, um, uh, concessions or, from the emperors, yeah, no. but Jordanes never mentions this. It's just a history of friendship mm. uh, between Goths and Romans. Yeah, the Western so, country, long ago governed by the rule of our ancestors and predecessors, our ancestors and predecessors, right? When he's talking to, this is Theodoric talking to the emperor and convincing him to help let him take over Italy. Mm-hmm. This Western country long ago governed by the rule of your ancestors and predecessors and the city was the head of the mistress of the world wherefore is it now shaken by the tyranny of this Torsingli and the Rugi send me there with my race thus if you will but say the word 
you may be freed from the burden of expense here, and if, by the Lord's help, I shall conquer, the fame of your piety shall be glorious there. For it is better that I, your servant and your son, <laughs> should rule the king that kingdom, receiving it as a gift from you if I conquer, than that one of one whom you do not recognize should oppress your senate, your senate, still that kind of, you know, revered institution, with his tyrannical yoke and a part of the republic with slavery. For if I prevail, I shall retain as your gift and it as your grant and gift. If I'm conquered, your party will lose nothing. Nay, as I have said, it will save the expense I now entail. And although the emperor was grieved to see him go, yet when he heard that what he said... He granted him what he asked, for he was unwilling to cause him sorrow. He sent him forth, enriched by great gifts, and commended to his charge the Senate and the Roman people. Ah, yes. So, so here's Theodoric is, um, seems like he's really uh, bringing the Romans and the Goths together, right? Yes, he's, he's bringing them together, and notice that he's fighting against a, a barbarian tyrant. Right. Let me go fight this barbarian tyrant, whose name is Odo Walker, by the way. Yeah. Odo Walker is in control of, of Italy at this point. Um, and uh, so he's portrayed as this barbarian tyrant who needs to be relieved by this embodiment of Roman Gothic culture. And as he dies, right, he says, uh, he tells to his, uh, his uh, followers, adjured and commanded them to honor their king, to love the Senate and the Roman people, and to make sure of the peace and goodwill of the Emperor of the East as of the East as next after God. Right? Yep. He's they're just being so nice, you know, like they he's doing everything he can. This uh, this Theodoric, he's done everything he can for the Roman people in Italy. He's treated them so nicely. He's done all this for the Emperor, you know, he's uh, he's a pious person, like the uh, the embodiment of yes we can live in peace and not only that but that is the best thing for the emperor uh, emperor, uh, emperor and the empire and the best thing for the goths and he uh, tells his people to do he tells his people to love the empire right and, uh, as next uh, after god he's kind of like you know the god's representative yeah yeah uh, or so this the is, one after god so jordanes is trying to you know portray the current enemy of rome the goths in italy as people who were instructed to love the empire Right. <laughs> so it's like you're you're mad. You're 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 uh, you're fighting against your own people that want to be your own your subjects and your your auxiliaries and your allies, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then it does seem like he kind of um, gives the emperor an out to say, "Look, well, I wasn't fighting against Theodoric, you know, but I'm fighting against these other Goths that kind of were uh, were not uh, true to Theodoric's line." Right. It's, right. it's the emperor. It's the, the, the next king. It's a couple kings later. It's Theodahad. Right. Who was, who was uh, Theodoric's cousin. Theodahad becomes. And had, king. Ki had, had killed the. Um, he killed it? Theodoric's daughter. Right. Strangling so, the bath by his hirelings. Right. And so there's the power struggle in, in Gothic Italy. Theodahad murders Theodoric's daughter, Amalaswintha. And Jordane says, because of this treachery, Justinian reacts and then attacks. Was aroused God. as if he had suffered personal injury in the deaths of his wards. Right. He was moved by the 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 by by this uh, this this treachery of this this other one Gothic leader against his preferred line. Right. 
and other contemporary Roman sources, namely Procopius, also attest that Justinian does use this pretext to go right. to war. And it's, so, it's, it's a common story. And so he he allows him that, right? Sure. And says, yeah. And uh, and now you know, obviously, this uh, wonderful uh, this wonderful uh, people. You know, this famous kingdom and valiant race, which had long had its way, was at last overcome in the almost 2030th year by the conqueror of men, many nations, the Emperor Justinian, through his most faithful consul, Belisarius. Right? Um, and uh, thou who readest this, know that I have followed the writings of my ancestors and have culled a few flowers from their broad meadows to weave a chaplet for him who cares to know these things. Let no one believe that to the advantage of the race which I have spoken, the Goths, uh, that I have written that for their advantage, though indeed I trace my own descent from it, I have added aught besides what I have read and learned by inquiry. This is all true. I have not, not added anything in order to make this more favorable to the Goths. Even thus, I have not included all that is written or told about them, nor spoken so much to their praise as to the glory of him who conquered them. I've done this, you know, so... <laughs> You know, like kind of, kind of like almost his defense, right? If if he's uh, charged with treason, right? That's right. So he writes this this pro Gothic history, this pro Roman Gothic history. And what's interesting here, what's very curious, is that the Giordano's narrative ends in the year five forty. So he says the war was over. Right. The Romans had won. They had become reunited. Giordano's talks about this marriage between Theodoric's granddaughter now Matasuntha. Mm-hmm. And the Emperor Justinian's cousin Germanus, they come together and they have a child. And this child is called a child of hope. Right. Just like just the like Theodoric is called a child of hope. Yes. And so he ends on this happy note in the year 540 when conflicts when the conflict had ended. Now, in actuality, the conflict did kind of end there in 540, but apparently Justinian's occupy, occupying government. Of, of Italy was so corrupt that it galvanized a Gothic and Italo-Roman resistance against the Eastern Roman occupants, and the war flamed back up. And so the war was still raging in 552 when Jordanius was writing, and everybody would have known this. So everybody reading the Getica would have seen this kind of happy counterfactual ending. end, a happy ending in a kind of counterfactual history, like a history that might have been. Right. We could have we could have ended our conflict then, or or might been. still be. Yeah, right. right. The ways can it's still be sought. Yeah, yeah. That 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 abortive past is a recommendation for our possible future, and uh, and so. But what's interesting is that in his other history, the Romana, he continues his narration of the Gothic War in Italy up until the present moment, hmm. and he portrays it as um, as a disaster on both sides. Right. So he blames the Gothic King Totilla for being unreasonable. And he blames Justinian for not just getting this war done. And, and thus so he, we can see that it is the Kings of men that lead them to wars. Right. Precisely. And right. Uh, by so the not, mad, mad, mad impulses of one ruler yeah. in one moment is torn down that which nature has taken generations to create. So he holds both the Gothic King and the Roman emperor to account here for pro- prolonging this unnatural conflict. This needless war. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so he hopes that, I think that, that this will affect some kind of change. And, and uh, uh, again, your listeners should know that the war was by no means 
over when Jordanes was was writing. And it wasn't certain who was going to win either, right? No, but but if you read about Jordanes and much scholarship, this is a mistake that's commonly made among scholars that they they assume the war was almost over because in fact it was almost over. But in the spring or summer of 552 when Jordanes was writing, no one could have known that. Mm. No one could have known that just months later, a new Roman invasion force would win two crucial victories over the Goths in Italy, forever changing the course of the war in the Romans' favor. But no one could have known that. It was still, uh, in, in the minds of most Romans, they would have known that the Goths were, were winning. The Goths and, had reclaimed all of the, uh, the, the peninsula. And just at, at the royal court, imagining, you know, he's uh, probably, I don't know, bringing together money, uh, assembling generals, you know, at, at the moment as he's writing these things, right? He was, yes. Uh, assembling an army under the, the general Narses. Right. So th this was the moment of, of high anxiety when Jordanes was writing. So the stakes, the stakes couldn't have been higher in his eyes. And then in the midst of this, he says, look, you think you're going out there and you're supporting a war against barbarians who threaten your existence. What you're actually going against is a civilized people who have helped you beat the Huns, who throughout Roman history have been the auxiliaries that made it possible for Rome to exist as long as it has and to win many wonderful, many uh, prestigious battles who until recently were your allies and representatives in Italy, uh, who have a civilized spirit. Uh, and it is against these that you are raising an army for a needless war where many will die and it will, you know, there's so many better ways of solving this. Sure. And we have to imagine that Jordanes would not have been the only voice uh, speaking like this. Like he, he's unique in our, in our eyes because we don't have any other texts like him and we don't have any other voices. Well, so uh, still at we, this time, there are people, there are Goths fighting in the emperor's army, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. So it's it's one goth against another goth kind of or one group of goths against another group of goths. Yep. Uh, and um and uh again Procopius, Jordanes contemporary, speaks quite well of Theodoric. Um in fact, Procopius doesn't he praises no other figure in his histories and his histories are very long more <laughs> than Theodoric. Um that he does this in part as an indirect criticism of Justinian. Right. Like, look at your look at your enemy. He's better than you. Right. Uh, but uh, there were not all voices in Constantinople were these sort of cliche anti-barbarian voices. Um, they wouldn't have seen the Goths in Italy as these cliche barbarians, but rather as you know geopolitical players who had to be dealt with in rational terms. Mm. I'm sure after 17 years of war, there were a number of a number of voices in the capital who were like, maybe we should just you know cut our losses. And, um, or find, again, uh, find a good diplomatic solution. Right, right. And then I think, so, I think Giordano should be thought of as, as one among a number of voices in a larger chorus calling for peace, calling for reconciliation. So writing history um, in order to advocate for peace. I think so. I think so. Um, unfortunately, the way history turned out was that... The, the war would continue and the war would be more or less wrapped up within a matter of years, though the conflict continued to simmer for a long time. 
Um, and and the Visigoths continue to be have a kingdom in 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 Spain until the Moors come, right? So there's most certainly. so there they are they are there are at least foreign policy implications of this uh, that still remain. Sure, yeah, um, but we just don't we don't know exactly how this played out on the ground. We have to use you know sort of informed speculative in, uh, imagination in that regard. Um, but it certainly had a purpose. He wasn't just writing in his journal. He wasn't just complaining to his friend. This would have had some kind of purpose on the ground. We just don't know exactly how that played out. But this is, uh, I mean, uh, I've made claims before and uh, argued before that uh, all history is rhetorical. And uh, this is perhaps one of the clearest examples of someone who writes history, I think, specifically for a moment in, like all the time pointing forward to the current moment and see, look at what a stupid situation we're in uh, and look at the vision of what could have been this child of good hope uniting the Goths and the Romans, the two civilized nations of the world. Mm -hmm. Sounds like for me a good place to stop. There's more, much more we could have said, but this is taking, uh, we've, we've had a long conversation and it's been great. Um, any last words that you'd like to add to, to that or say like uh, to our conversation or thoughts that you have? No, I think, um, I think Jordani's text is, is short enough to be accessible. So I encourage your, your listeners to, to, to look it up. I think it's available in, in several languages uh, because it has been of interest to so many peoples over the ages. It's, it's been translated into a number of languages, mm -hmm. even Norwegian. Uh, yeah. And so check that out. But I also encourage you to check out his often overlooked uh, Roman history. Yeah. I, I definitely want to do that now. He mentions, so in the Getica, he mentions the Romana, and in the Romana, he mentions the Getica. And so whenever an historian is doing this, he's rhetorically drawing the two texts together. He's saying, hey, keep both in mind. So they're parallel histories meant to be taken together. Um, and so, yeah, check that out. And, um, you know, I probably within, uh, it's off with a, at press right now, but the book should be out uh, within within the year. Well. So Good, uh, good luck with the uh, good luck with the last part of that uh, of that uh, process. I appreciate it. And uh, I thought it was just very interesting. Very often, history is written in order to give legitimacy to a certain government, or a king, or a kingly line, uh, or or so on. Um, I find it uh, very interesting that, uh, and I think it's persuasive that this history was written specifically to unify two peoples that we're currently at war. And uh, mm. that is, um, that, that's, uh, there are a lot of very touching moments like that, you know, where he talks about that, uh, you know, let us, you know, uh, if we could only, if we could only have this state of peace, um, this is what nature wants. This is what goes with nature. Let's not go against nature or against God uh, by warring against each other when so much brings us together and we can establish civilization together. Good. Well said. Well right. said. Good. I'll just uh, go again to the uh, recording. Again, a symbol of geth Gothic civilization, I guess you could say there, of the uh, of the Gothic Bible or the Gothic reading of uh, Our Father, Who Art Thou in Heaven. Great. Thanks, David. Ate unsar thu in himenam, weekne namothin. Quimeth you the nasus thins. Where the willithins, 
Sween himmela, jach ana erde. Glef uns rana van sentina, gif us himmedage. Jach aflet uns, dat is kulan syjeme, swas we jach wis afletem, dem skulam unsarem. Jach ne bringes uns in frestuvnia, ak lausi uns af dame uvelin. Ultefine ist Judengardi, jach magst, jach ultus in Erwins. Amen.